Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me for today's podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, how's it going? Oh, it's going great. Enjoying my uh, you know, self-isolation. <laughs> we have been joking a little bit about being self-isolated, but it seems as though events of the world really escalated quickly, which is a lot of what we are going to talk about today. And joining us to discuss all these issues today also is Megan Payne. Megan, how are you? I'm all right. I am getting a little stir crazy, I guess you could say, with my self-isolation. But um, the good news is that neighborhood walks are still totally permissible and very good. Can you imagine if we couldn't leave our houses, how much worse that would be? Oh my gosh, I don't want to imagine that. I I can just imagine the insanity that would be that I would be experiencing if we if that were a thing. Well, the only people who may not know what we're talking about must be living under a rock because on this week's podcast, we're going to talk about the full onset of the coronavirus on American society. The global pandemic has grinded much of our nation's economy, our work lives, our personal lives. It's grinded it all to a halt. So we're going to talk about how that impacts our politics, how governments uh, in the state, local and federal level are responding, um, and what the outlook on that is going forward. And then for our second topic this week, we are going to recap Tuesday's elections in the Democratic presidential primary. These elections occurred under the shadow of a pandemic, and they may be our last contest for a while, at least in the Democratic primary. Uh, But first, let's start with the onset of the coronavirus. So the coronavirus has officially upended everyday life in Georgia and across the country. You are probably dealing with some kind of disruption at your job. The luckiest among us are simply transitioning to telework, while some people who work in public spaces like the service industry are facing cuts in hours or potentially losing their job. The legislature has suspended indefinitely after granting the governor an unprecedented authority under a public health emergency declaration early this week. And in Washington, Congress is flailing over an economic response while the president continues to send mixed messages and react far too slowly. Megan, I hate to task you with being the bearer of bad news here, but I think the place to start to sort of orient our listeners as to where we are in this situation is just to talk about what the latest numbers are regarding the number of cases in Georgia. What are the latest numbers on the coronavirus? Yeah, they, it doesn't look great. Um, so the cur- currently there have been at least 10 deaths. Um, there have been 287 cases in 36 counties, and those include new counties where we hadn't yet seen the virus. So that's Bibb, Early, Glen, Lawrence, Muskogee, and Peach County. And by the way, these 287 cases are a combination of presumptive and positive tests. Um, so there are potentially more out there that we have not been able to test for or people who have not gone to see a physician who are just self-quarantining, hopefully. As far as tests go, the state labs have processed 508 of them. Um, Of those, 113 were positive. And then commercial labs have been able to process more tests. Um, They're up to 1,300 tests, 174 of those being positive. Now, granted, these numbers are rapidly changing. So I'm sure even now these numbers are a little bit off. And by the time our listeners hear this, they will be even further off. But as we sit here, um, that's where we're at. 
Yeah, one dynamic at play with these numbers is that there has been a lag in the availability of tests, meaning that as more tests are produced and they're connected to people so that they can take them, we're finding out about uh, infections of this virus that that already existed. Um, And so it is likely that these numbers will increase pretty significantly. That doesn't necessarily mean an increase in the speed of the spread of this virus. It could be just an increase in detection. Um, But we're going to talk a little bit about the response today uh, because it really does seem like a strong response from governing authorities really dictates the rate of spread of this uh, virus. And so so that is a really important factor to keep in mind. But it is likely true that these numbers that were reported today from Governor Kemp in a, in a press conference, um, that these numbers are actually understating the extent of this problem. Luke, the probably the biggest action on the state level occurred earlier this week when the legislature came into a special emergency session to ratify a public health emergency declaration that was made by the governor over the weekend. What does this public health emergency declaration mean for the authorities that Governor Kim now has? Well, it's, I mean, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a pretty massive emergency-focused expansion of his powers. Um, for more information on this, you should definitely check out uh, State Representative Mike Walensky's uh, Twitter. He put out a pretty good, simple summation of like what this thing uh, is going to do. But the the short of it is, a lot of this is focused on. And I think quoting the you know what Walensky's tweet says is the best thing to do here, which is you know to assume direct operational control of all civil forces and helpers in the state. And so. Like, it's basically giving Kemp direct authority to be in charge of every part of the state government and giving him the authority to direct them in the response to um, this crisis. And, you know, beyond that, not only, you know, working in controlling the apparatus of state, but it's also, you know, uh, giving him the authority to seize Take, temp- uh, take for temporary use or condemn property for protection of the public in accordance with condemnation proceedings, you know, to sell, uh, to sell, lend, give, or distribute all or any such property among the inhabitants of the state and to account for property agency for any funds received for the property, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Basically, what this seems to be doing is trying to give Kemp broad, wide authority to use the state, but also to... Uh, prepare the state if we get in a situation where we need to acquire significant property. A lot of this seems focused at fixing one potential problem that we've heard about and we've seen overseas, especially in Italy, uh, and that is not having enough physical space to hold people that are sick and not having enough uh, respirators and testing equipment, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of this seems focused in giving Kemp the power that if we got in the situation where a bunch of people were sick and we didn't have enough space for them that you know we, we can be working ahead of time and trying to build spaces to quarantine those folks, to treat those folks so that not every hospital in the state is getting overrun uh, like is happening in some other places. And so a lot of um, this resolution seems focused on giving Kemp powers to avoid the worst case scenarios. Yeah, he also has a lot of powers to 
uh, suspend laws, rules, regulations. It's a really broad authority for the governor under this declaration. Um, And so it's probably instructive to sort of look at what he's done with that authority and with some of the other sort of more standard emergency level authorities that he has as governor. Uh, He has ordered schools across the state closed. All schools were closed on March the 18th, and that closure is going to last at least through March the 31st, transitioning students to online learning for the most part. Um, That is also a trend that is happening in in post-secondary and our 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 technical colleges and universities. Um, A lot of students are going to be out of class at this time. Another element of this response that has been the subject of a lot of debate has been whether or not the governor should force the closure of bars, restaurants, movie theaters, public spaces like that. Megan, what do you think about that question that stands before the governor? What are some of the factors that he's dealing with in that discussion? And do we think that he is making a mistake by not being more aggressive in forcing those closures? I have mixed feelings on this. On the one hand, I think that as the governor of the state, he has the responsibility of um, playing it conservatively, if you will. And I don't mean conservatively politically. I mean conservatively just as in like playing it safe. We've seen from other countries, particularly Italy, how – this virus can get out of hand. We've also seen from countries like China where they've been able to implement a different style of law that the way you can stop the spread of this virus is by stopping people from being able to socialize. While I appreciate my American freedoms, I also appreciate when our leaders can make the hard decision to say, okay, I'm going to have to temporarily suspend this freedom because we need to stop the spread of this virus. We need to make sure that our people are safe. We need to make sure that there is going to be able to be a future, to be able to go out and do things and enjoy life. So from that perspective, I think that he should just go ahead and say, all right, for the the sake of Georgia, you know, I'm going to make some hard decisions. Instead, he's leaving that up to the local officials who some of them are, are definitely taking that into their own hands. But to contrast that a little bit, um, I can see why Kemp doesn't want to, right? Like we are, as I said a minute ago, it is one of our freedoms to be able to make some of those decisions as citizens. And it feels it feels really bad when you have somebody kind of at the top of the food chain or toward the top telling you, no, you can't do this thing that you enjoy doing. So from that perspective, from the perspective of having to you know, take that away from someone, I can see why Kemp wouldn't want to do that. But what I do want to call out is the leadership in Athens, Georgia, and Atlanta, particularly. Um, I can I know Luke can speak a little bit more to Athens because of his connections there. But for me, living in Atlanta, Mayor Bottoms came out today and said that she would be uh, halting all dine-in services for restaurants, closing bars, closing movie theaters, closing things like that, and taking those steps in making those really hard decisions. This is only applicable in the Atlanta city limits, which isn't as big as you think it is. But it's still a radical step that I appreciate that she has taken because what it does is it helps protect me. Um, I live in a high rise in the heart of Atlanta. And, you know, I'm surrounded by restaurants. I'm surrounded by there are bars around me, things like that. And so if people are still going about doing, you know, being social, then those places become potential hotspots for the virus to spread. And they're 
right in my backyard. Now, granted, I'm not going into them, so the chances of me encountering that would be unlikely, but it's still a coming together of people in an area where it needn't happen otherwise. I'll let Luke speak a little bit more about what's going on in Athens, but I do think that I feel that Kemp probably should be taking further steps as well as I feel like President Trump should be too. Yeah, and I I, I agree with Megan. I, I think it helps this discussion by pointing out something that's been pointed out by many others, but like it's very strange that the leadership on this is not coming from the federal government. And it's not just Trump. I mean, it's like, it's just weird that like, there's not a whole lot of like looking to the federal government as a bureaucracy for leadership on this. And it's strange that states are having to take the lead on this. And the thing that I've been really interested in is just like looking at the different types of responses from different states. Um, Because like Andrew Cuomo in New York has been the person in New York state, like leading everything that's happening there. And he just seems so on top of it and is so clear about like, we, we have a plan, we're dealing with this and, you know, we're, we're doing everything possible to ensure that this is going to be dealt with. And then there's Trump who basically ignored it for a really long time and had to be dragged into paying attention to it. And then there's like Brian Kemp who's in the middle. And I'm not saying that in like a bad way because, you know, just people handle situations differently. And I think Kemp all in all, like he's, he's not failing, you know, he might not be getting a pluses, but he's not failing right now because he has been very transparent. I've appreciated that they've really tried like every day to come out and say, this is what we know. This is what we're doing. And um, trying to do the bare minimum of things that can make people feel better. Uh, the thing I, I I wish Kemp was doing more in the like Cuomo way is like giving more direction on what localities should be doing. And the reason I, I preface everything like this is, you know, I've been uh, as part of one of my other jobs, like I've been looking at all of the cities in Georgia and all the different things they've been doing. And the range of responses is astounding. I mean, there's some places that are basically like, yep, we're doing everything like we've always done. Don't worry about it. We're fine. And then there's other places like Athens that are, you know, literally as we we're recording this, not when you're listening to it, uh, is debating a tw- like 24 hour shelter in place policy which you know basically is a light curfew where they heavily heavily encourage you to not leave your house unless you're doing something that you really really have to do and they have already before now uh instituted a ban on gatherings of more than 10 people and so just like the fact that that range of responses is happening is a clear sign that people don't have clear direction on what they should be doing and you know god bless kelly gertz and god bless all you know mayor bottoms and all the other mayors of Georgia and county commissioners and city commissioners that are making these decisions. But like, I don't think any of them are experts in diseases like these and that it should not be up to these folks to make these decisions. There should be more guidance from the federal level and from the state level. And we're just not seeing that. And that's why, you know, it's hard to tell, like, is Athens overreacting or is everyone else underreacting? Well, and unfortunately, the only way to know if there is an underreaction is if the virus spreads a lot, right? You can't really test for an overreaction because either it was successful and the virus didn't spread or it was an overreaction and you didn't need to do it anyway, in which case the virus wouldn't spread. So, yeah, and it's one of those things that uh, unfortunately, the the way that we will f- 
the way we will know we were successful is if it feels like we overreacted. And that's just a strange position to be in. Right. Yeah. And I mean, there is some guidance coming from the federal government there. A lot of what I think is lacking is the determination among some public officials to be the one that makes the final decision. I mean, the CDC has put out guidance uh, setting levels uh, related to the number of people who can be at a gathering. That number fell to 50 uh, earlier in the week. Uh, President Trump suggested that you shouldn't have gatherings larger than 10 people. Um, So there is that guidance out there that seems to be loosely based on recommendations from public health experts. But there doesn't seem to be the final step in that means you need to do this in your community. And that is, I think, the places where local officials are being left to make these decisions. I don't envy the decision before Governor Kemp, though, uh, because I think one of the really challenging aspects of the decision about whether or not to force bars, restaurants, movie theaters, bowling alleys, other sort of service industry establishments to close is that on the one hand, you want to protect the frontline workers who are working at places like that from public interactions where they where the virus may spread. On the other hand, if you force those establishments to close, those employees are likely to get laid off. They're likely to have their hours cut if you have a restaurant that, for instance, sort of ends up being halfway open because they're doing takeout service only, but they're not doing any sort of seated service in their establishment. And Congress has really struggled to come up with consensus around some sort of an economic bailout package. There have been efforts to sort of improve existing programs, put more funding into things government was already doing to sort of begin to ramp up the response. But widespread closures like these that could be ordered by governors or mayors, um, or even could be conceivably considered by the federal government, um, those are going to necessitate a much larger fiscal economic response that's going to require money in people's pockets to stave off a recession. Uh, Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, sort of floated the possibility that a worst-case scenario sort of looks like 20% unemployment, which is almost twice the unemployment rate that was reached at its highest point during the Great Recession. I mean, that is like depression-level unemployment figures. And I think that, you know, we you don't see really uh, detailed analysis that suggests that's exactly where we're going. That seems like a sort of an out-there worst-case scenario. But that is, at least in part, some of the factors that I think weigh on the minds of people like Governor Kemp who have this decision before them. Um, and so... To me, sort of the biggest thing that's lacking in the response is not necessarily the the lack of action by the governor or or pushing off that action uh, onto localities. We should say in the governor's defense, he is urging people not to go to gatherings like these. He's he's urging people, telling people that it's the right thing to do to stay home. Um, And we'll talk about one state lawmaker who should have followed that advice here shortly, but he's not forcing it. The thing I think that is missing in all of this response is the coordination between state, federal, and local, so that if the state makes a decision to close establishments, Congress and the federal government that has the resources to offset the financial pain of those costs has to come in and deliver that sort of second phase of the response. And that's the place where I think this has been lacking. 
One other place where I have found the response to be lacking, at least to this point, we're recording on Thursday evening, and so I haven't seen movement on these policies yet, is there are efforts in Georgia and efforts at the federal level that are being uh, produced in rules set by the U.S. Department of Agriculture to limit access to the SNAP program, the food stamp program. Um, There is also a lack of universal low-income access to the Medicaid program in our state because we are a state that has not accepted the ACA's Medicaid expansion. The state could take steps to make both of these programs more accessible, and that would have two benefits. Uh, Number one, the SNAP program, the food stamp program, is a really great economic stabilizer because people typically get these benefits when they are in dire need. They then spend that money on necessities like groceries uh, so that they can continue to put food on their table. And that's a very direct way to inject money into the economy, which is a real answer to this question of whether or not we're going into a recession or even worse. The other uh, issue here is the lack of Medicaid expansion on the state level. 20 Democrats that are running for the state house wrote this letter asking the governor to expand Medicaid unilaterally under his emergency powers that he has because of this declaration. Medicaid would be a very good tool in this instance to connect people to health care to make sure that their uh, their costs are covered, not only for any coronavirus testing or treatment that comes from that, but any other issues that are related that may not get addressed by this effort to make coronavirus care free. Um, Medicaid would be an important tool to do that. And I think that's another place where the governor, he's the one left in town to act because the legislature is on hiatus for now. Um, those are two other places where he could push the ball forward. So one example of really pretty abysmal personal decision-making, unfortunately, uh, is the case of State Senator Brandon Beach. Uh, When lawmakers gathered on Monday uh, to ratify the uh, emergency declaration for the governor, they did so in person, which struck me as odd given that I believe at that time, because of the size of the legislature, they were violating the existing CDC guidelines, uh, but they needed to gather to ratify that emergency declaration. Um, And one person who decided to come down to the Capitol on Monday to help ratify that declaration was State Senator Brandon Beach. Uh, Senator Beach had been tested for the coronavirus. He had already shown some symptoms beginning on March the 10th. And despite this, he, he said that he felt like he was feeling a little better. He came down there and interacted with some of his colleagues in the Senate and at the Capitol. And then on Wednesday night, it was revealed that Brandon Beach had tested positive for the coronavirus, meaning that now every member of the Georgia legislature has been, uh, it has been suggested to them that they self-quarantine for fear of interaction with, with Senator Beach or the people that he interacted with being down at the Capitol on Monday. Guys, what the fuck? I am shaking my head over here. It was appalling, irresponsible, inconsiderate. I I can't believe that that was his decision. Knowing what the guidance was from the CDC, WHO, our state leadership, knowing that if you could be shedding the virus if you're not exhibiting symptoms and knowing that he was exhibiting symptoms and had been tested and didn't know what his status was, that he still decided to go down to the Capitol and expose everyone down at the Capitol 
And and who knows who else, right? Who knows what else he did before or after he went down there? Yeah, this is this is not smart. And, you know, I'm sympathetic to the legislature. Uh, you know, laws exist. The state constitution exists. So they probably did have to all go down there in person, but they should have been, you know, smarter about if they were concerned about having the virus or being exposed to anyone with the virus that they shouldn't have came. And, you know, their one vote in that instance was, was not critical. And I think if, you know, I think people would understand, like, why did you miss the emergency vote? Because I thought I had coronavirus. I, I feel like no one would hit you on that. So I really don't see why uh, Senator Beach thought he should be there. So not good decision-making there by uh, State Senator Brandon Beach. Um, obviously, we hope he gets well. Uh, it, it is unfortunate that that he has contracted the virus. Um, so, so we wish the best for his health, but uh, wish he would have thought a little more about this before coming down to the Capitol. I think though, what that raises for me is this coming back to this question of, of quarantines and, and closing establishments and things like that. Brandon Beach sort of exemplifies kind of the downside of officials who are urging people to stay inside, but not acting to basically force people to stay inside. Uh, Luke, you mentioned that Athens was considering the shelter in place measure. What do we think about the efficacy, uh, whether or not it, it would be a good idea for more local governments or state governments or, or really whatever authority to actually force people to stay in their homes? The place I would start with with this is uh, the justification that County Commissioner Russell Edwards uh, has put out in his supporting of the mandatory uh, shelter in place. And, and to quote an uh, email he sent out, quote, similar policies have been adopted around the world simply because voluntary measures do not work, end quote. And I mean, in Athens, that's been somewhat true. I haven't been out that much, but I think some people haven't just like fully let it sink in uh, that this is a serious problem and people need to, to stay in. And so having some teeth to the not allowing groups larger than 10 and uh, potentially doing shelter in place, I, I think might be necessary just because, and this is the, the really critical thing that makes this so hard is that to be successful in this, it has to feel like we overreacted because we're not trying to, we're not, you know, it's not like the entire world's going to collapse tomorrow. It's that we're trying to prevent it from collapsing a couple weeks from now. And so things don't, things currently aren't bad enough to make this feel necessary. And the only way you prevent it from getting there is by overreacting. And so I think that might be what it takes. You know, Athens is kind of a weird case because we have a couple cases of coronavirus already. And you would think Athens being a college town, there'd be a lot of like stupid college kids that like don't get the memo and still go out. Um, but all the, like most of the college kids are gone. Like it was our spring break right before the uh, closure of the university started. And and so we, we sort of have problems on the other side of this. And I, I think you mentioned this Kyle and gave Kemp a lot of uh, leeway in the sense that, you know, he's trying to balance all of these other, uh, I you know, concerns beyond the health concerns. And I will say, um, to a fault, UGA in Athens has been incredibly aggressive in deciding that they wanted to be on the side of focusing solely on the health concerns. So, like, UGA closed its dorms 
the law school is closed, like people's textbooks are and all their property are in their dorms and they aren't letting people go back. And, you know, that might, that's going to hurt a lot of people. Um, and, you know, they are trying to make exceptions for, you know, like international students or people who like literally do not have another place to live besides the dorms. But for the vast majority of UGA students, they're suffering like a, a pretty serious inconvenience um, and having to, you know, just not go back to where they thought they were going to be going back to. And, and um, that is definitely... I think until we know more, it I think that's the safer approach because what we really don't want to have happen is a couple of weeks from now, we saying, man, I wish we would have done more. And I, I think overreacting right now and keeping people healthy uh, is important um, because especially for Athens, which is a town that you know skews younger, I imagine, you know, I'm happy they're taking these extreme steps because the CDC has reported that, you know, 38% of the people having to be hospitalized because of this virus are between 20 and 54 and that um 12 percent of the intensive care patients were being between 20 and 44 and so you know there's been a lot of reporting about how this really only is deadly with older people but you know it, it still seems like plenty of young people are having a pretty rough time uh with this Another place where the impact of the coronavirus has really been felt is on uh, the issue of elections. We are in the middle of the Democratic primary season. Um, so we have been, as as our listeners know from listening to this show and uh, look, turning on your Twitter feeds, we have been consistently having elections across states in the Democratic primary for weeks now. Uh, Megan, what happened to Georgia's Democratic primary? It got postponed. Actually, what it really did is it got combined with the primary that is going to happen May 19th. So now we will have the presidential preference primary and the general state primary on May 19th. So this raises, I think, the issue of how the state is going to prepare to have an election on May 19th. Uh, clearly, it would have been difficult to have an election on March the 24th. We will talk in our second segment about three states that decided to go ahead anyways on this last Tuesday and hold elections. Um, but one thing this raises is a question about the way in which people could vote if the virus is still a major concern in May. Luke, what are some of the other options for people who are going to be voting in May? The other options for people are surprisingly options that were kind of always available to them, but might seem a lot more advantageous now. The big option that a lot of people should be considering more is absentee uh, voting. You know, Georgia is actually, despite a lot of its other voting problems, is a pretty good state for absentee ballots. So it seem, we seem to like it, even though the government doesn't hype it up very often. It is something you can get with no excuse. So uh, I have, bef you know, absentee balloted before. It's very easy. You just, you know, fill out a form, mail it, and they'll send it to you. Um, but you don't even have to re have a reason. You just request it and they'll give it to you. Um, the other thing you can do uh, that would be um, a little bit more risky uh, on the social distancing front, but probably far less risky than voting on election day is early vote in person. Um, so, the, you know, those options exist uh, for for voters. To elaborate on what Luke was saying a little bit, um, 
you can absentee ballot. You don't actually have to mail in your request. There is now a way that you can email it in. And I also believe you can fax it in if you have a fax machine, which I don't know anyone that actually has a fax machine, but maybe, maybe you do. A lot of the Um, people who are in a very vulnerable demographic to the coronavirus probably have a fax machine. That's fair. That's reasonable. So yeah, if you have a fax machine, if you have a scanner, if you have the ability to take a picture of your completed document, um, then you can email in your form or if you have a way to like digitally sign it, which is something that I've done before, you can just attach it to an email and send in your application. Like Luke said, you don't have to have a reason in Georgia. You can just request a ballot on a per election basis and go from there. Um, I think that it would be it would be interesting to see Georgia push this a little bit more. I've heard some reports of Georgia considering um, going ahead and mailing out the ballot applications that people would need to encourage voting. And I've also some states actually do it this way in general. Um, I believe it's Oregon, Washington, and Colorado are mail-in only voting states, so they don't have to go to the polls. Um, which is maybe something that we could consider as Georgians. Maybe that's a good option for us, at least for as a trial run for this next uh, election. And also, I mean, like, I know we just got those fancy uh, voting machines, but, you know, it could potentially be more secure. I understand that, you know, there are some questions about ballots going through the mail and possibly being compromised or stolen that way, but I don't know. Well, and somewhat ironically, uh, if most of this election was conducted via absentee ballot, it would be conducted on a hand-marked paper ballot, which is what the activists have been asking for. Um, I think, though, this raises uh, the question of how prepared the state is to adopt an option like that. Um, I was actually on Political Rewind with the Secretary of State this morning, and we got to talk to him a little bit about this. Um, He seemed interested in expanding access to absentee ballots by considering mailing ballots. Uh, He wanted to sort of break it up by age demographic and and start with older voters who are obviously more uh, susceptible, more at risk because of the virus and the public health situation. Um, There have been calls for every voter in the state to just be mailed an absentee ballot up front. Um, I believe that's like over 7 million voters uh, so there is a cost issue there for the state. Um, but but it seemed like, you know, the, the, the secretary sort of put himself in the position of exploring all options, preparing for that outcome. And they've obviously bought a little more time by pushing off the presidential primary to line up with the state primaries in May. Um, so that gives them the opportunity to figure it out. But no hard commitments in terms of transitioning this election fully to an absentee ballot election. Um, And he was really hoping that the parties would sort of step up and do an education effort to let people know uh, that voting absentee is going to be a safe option uh, in May. There have been a ton of questions that have been posed in various forums about what all of these changes means. And so I wanted to point everyone to a really great resource that was put together by the Young Democrats of Georgia. Um, if you head to the Young Democrats of Georgia social media, you can find a really a pretty comprehensive infographic there, as well as I know the Young Democrats uh, board has been pretty active in replying to questions as people have them. So 
I'm a member of that organization, although not a member of the board, but I do know a lot of the board members and they are definitely staying on top of it. So uh, check them out. And if you have any questions, feel free to ask them or you can ask us and we can raise it through the channels to see if we can get answers. Yeah, I think this is going to be really interesting to watch. Uh, Secretary of State Raffensperger has a pretty strange uh, problem to deal with that you know no one could have really predicted of you know dealing with uh, combining these two elections. And my my great curiosity is how he's going to deal with people who uh, might want to vote in one presidential primary but vote in the other party's uh, general primary. I, I'll be very curious to see just if they have a solution for that, just because uh, people who have already voted had that opportunity. And I, I feel like that is just a election law case waiting to happen if they basically say, too bad, so sad, you can't do that. Um, when, you know, letting some voters do one thing and other voters do another, that that's, that's the one thing Bush v. Gore said you can't do, basically. So uh, that will be uh, very interesting. All right. Well, obviously, the coronavirus is having an impact across a lot of uh, our political life, our work life, our personal life, across a lot of that in our state. Um, So please stay home, wash your hands, keep your distance from people, take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Um, It's all going to be fine, uh, but it's not fine right now. (laughs) So finally, this week, Joe Biden won three contests in the Democratic primary on Tuesday, likely accumulating an insurmountable lead in the delegate count. Uh, But the day's vote was overshadowed by the coronavirus's disruption of American society, including the vote, which featured long lines in some places, senior centers in other places where there are vulnerable people, senior centers like those being used as precinct locations, and decreased in-person turnout as people did their best to distance themselves from their neighbors. Let's start with reactions to Tuesday. Obviously, there were other things on the mind of the public broadly. Um, But Luke, what was your reaction to Biden's victories in the three contests that were had on Tuesday? Uh, my reaction is the only factual true one. As you know, John Adams said, facts are stubborn things. This race is over. This race has been over. Biden is the Democratic nominee. I don't care what Bernie Math says. I don't care what anybody on Twitter says. Unless something very dramatic happens, he is the Democratic nominee. So with that being said, um, uh, the inevitable next question is, because I'm just done. I'm done talking about the primary. The primary is over. Should Bernie drop out? Yes, Bernie should have dropped out yesterday. My, uh, you know, what I really—if I was writing reality, I would have had Bernie uh, do the entire debate and then say, you know, Joe, you're a good friend of mine. I trust you, and I'm dropping out and endorsing you right now on stage. If uh, Bernie wanted to go out like a hero, that would have been his option. Instead, he's going to go out, you know, as Ber- oh, as Bernie only can, and staying way too long. And, uh, you know, there's, there, there's just isn't the math, there's no mathematical path. Like he literally had a better mathematical path at the convention in 2016 than he does right now for him, uh, to become the next president of the United States. Uh, the, the, there was an argument he could try to make at the convention in 2016. He does not have that argument. And to quote Senator Sanders, when a reporter was questioning him about his timeline for dropping out, because it's not a question of if he's going to drop out, it's a question of when. Senator Sanders said, quote, I'm dealing with a fucking global crisis, you know, end quote. 
Yes, Bernie, you are dealing with a global crisis, so why are you still running for president? That is my question for you. Because, and this is now like, you know, I've been very hard on Bernie, so now I'm going to pivot, and this is not a fake pivot. This is a real pivot. I believe this. We need Bernie Sanders. You know where we need him? We need him in the Senate. We need Bernie to go 100% Bernie in the Senate. I don't want Bernie spending one minute thinking about running for president, because he's not going to be president. What he should be spending his time doing is making sure... That when this administration tries to give out $150 trillion or whatever new number they're going to invent for how much money they're going to try to give the stock market to make Trump's only metric of success look good, that Bernie's like, no, go screw yourself. I'm Bernie Sanders, and I am a senator, and I have the power of the Senate to prevent you from doing this obviously stupid thing. Are you threatening me, Master Jedi? The Senate will decide your fate. I am the Senate. I'm Bernie Sanders, and I approve this message. <laughs> like, that is that is what he needs to spend every waking moment doing. And he's the only person that can do it, because Bernie Sanders is the only asshole who will do that to everyone and not care, like, what the consequences will be, because he has the political capital to do it, and he has the ability to do it. And so, you know, that's just what he needs to do. And Bernie's the only guy that can do it. And so, you know, in that sense, that is that is why I'm more frustrated than usual with Bernie uh, because he's he's there's an opportunity cost to the vanity project that he's currently engaged in because he is not going to be the Democratic nominee barring a massive tragedy uh, because the math is just not there. He would have to win every state by like 100% and Biden would just have to stop winning everything, which basically since Super Tuesday, Biden has won everything. He's won states he shouldn't have won. Megan, I think Bernie Sanders supporters would obviously feel a little bit differently. You saw in the debate on Sunday, Bernie Sanders really contrasts his record against Joe Biden's. Um, What are your views of whether or not Sanders should drop out of this race? I'm in agreement with Luke. I do think Sanders should drop out. I respect Sanders's position. I especially think that some of the things that he is trying to do with healthcare are very important. But I've been saying this for a long time. I feel like Sanders is eight to 10 years ahead of his time. And in that time, there would have to be another Democratic president who started paving the way for some of the the agenda items that he would like to push through. Um, I don't see his items as feasible. I find them all to be missing steps, like say one through through three. Um, I also don't know that the nation, I know that based on the math that he is sharing that it should come out cheaper for the nation. But honestly, I don't, I have a really hard time understanding how that could possibly be the case um, when basically what we're talking about is giving away a lot of things for free. Granted, let me be very clear. I support a lot of these measures that he's talking about. I in no way oppose them. But what I think is there has to be a lot of action to get there. And putting him in that position now just skips a lot of steps and ultimately could make it very difficult for him to actually come fulfill his promises because there are so many things that need to be done before they're even feasible from where I'm sitting. And I, I agree with Megan entirely, and that's another reason why Bernie Sanders should drop out, because literally every day that he stays in this race, he just hurts his movement and embarrasses his movement, because this is not close. 
Bi- and it's not it's not like oh Biden was winning and now Bernie's starting to do better. No, <clears throat> Bernie's just losing and he's losing badly. And you know it's like the people have spoken. And when by- I say the people, I don't mean the, the DNC insiders in some smoke filled room where they said Joe Biden is the nominee. No, it's like people are voting for Joe Biden more. Like they have had a long time to make their arguments. Like I think everyone in America, especially everyone voting in a Democratic primary, knows exactly who. Bernie Sanders is, they know exactly what he believes, and they know the same thing about Joe Biden, and they are picking Joe Biden at a much higher rate. Uh, This obviously raises the question, Bernie Sanders clearly does have a group of supporters who really fervently back him. Um, He created at least enough of a movement to rely solely on grassroots fundraising that powered him to being one of the most consistent, prolific fundraisers in the entire contest. Um, this has not translated into big victories in in very many states, um, so that is certainly a problem for his campaign. But it also presents a problem for Joe Biden that there is a segment of the Democratic Party or people who at least want to be a part of the Democratic presidential nominating process um, who are big backers of Bernie Sanders and who may not be very wild about Joe Biden Uh, Biden has extended a couple of olive branches to the progressive wing of the party. He backed an Elizabeth Warren proposal on bankruptcy laws that basically undoes a bankruptcy bill that he supported some 20, 25 years ago. Um, He also backed a proposal to make colleges technical colleges, colleges and universities, tuition-free. It was an expansion of the proposal that he had on college affordability earlier in the process, although that olive branch really only brings him to the same place that Hillary Clinton was in her 2016 campaign. What are other things, particularly in the context of the virus, which is really dominating news coverage, dominating people's thoughts, what tools are there for Joe Biden to try to unify the party, bring the progressive wing into it, and start to make the turn towards a general election? Well, you you illustrated this as a problem for Joe Biden, and it is, but the person who it's a bigger problem for is Bernie Sanders. Because by Bernie Sanders' own standards, he should be the number one advocate for Joe Biden being the nominee of the Democratic Party. Because when on a stage, the Democrats were all asked, who should be the Democratic nominee who had the most votes and delegates or, you know, someone else. And Bernie was the only person that raised his hands. On top of that, Bernie has been pretty clear from day one of this race that his number one priority was beating Donald Trump. And so now his his opportunity to prove if he's full of shit, and that's just something he says because he thinks it will make him look better or if he actually means that. Luke, I do think that there is a difference there between, I think you're likely to find Bernie to be pretty supportive of Biden as the nominee, getting there out on the campaign trail to back him. Um, I do think that there is going to be a gap there between him and his supporters that I don't think Bernie is the one sort of solely responsible for. Oh, he's definitely not solely responsible, but he is heavily responsible for him because like, I know a lot of Bernie Sanders fans. I'm friends with a lot of Bernie Sanders fans and like they look to him for cues and I'm not saying it's like a monolithic cult and that they're just going to do exactly what Bernie says quite the opposite. There are a lot of independent thinking people. That's yeah. And, um, yeah, it's just Bernie's going to have to do a lot. Now, that being said, I think Biden illustrating that he understands the gravity of this situation 
uh, is going to help him a lot. Um, so far, I've been pretty pleased with his response. I mean, he's basically trying to play tele- uh, you know, television president, and he can't do anything, but he can like make it very clear, like, this is what I would be doing if I was president, and I think that's really smart. So, you know, following uh senator sanders league but also people like aoc and other progressives who are fighting right now in congress to make sure that the um government's response to this pandemic involves middle class and uh you know people who are were already in tough situations before this crisis um you know proposing benefits that would help those folks i think that would be really important but um a lot of people have recommended biden adopt jay Inslee's climate change plan i think that would be a very smart move on his part since uh that is one area where his plan has been lacking and he's done a really biden's done a really good job of consolidating the party behind him that is not a conspiracy i think that is a the like a testament to joe biden being good at being a senator and like he was in the senate for a long time and so he knows how to like wrangle people with big egos towards a bigger mission and that is basically the premise of his presidency (laughs) that he's going to be able to do that and so i think there is no greater test for joe biden as well you know than this situation is like can he get bernie on his side and really from everything i've ever heard and seen like joe biden and bernie sanders like each other so i think this is hopefully a place where they can actually come together and do this um and that biden can make it really clear to uh bernie supporters that he cares about them and that he wants them to be part of his coalition and i think the first thing he can do despite my you know call to action to senator sanders who i'm sure is listening um you know is making it easier for Bernie to make that decision to become the number one Joe Biden surrogate and stop running against him. I think that would be a pretty clear illustration to a lot of more progressives types like myself that Joe Biden is like taking our concern seriously and is, is going to do everything he can to uh, have a government that follows those values. Megan, not party nominees do have another tool at their disposal. Uh, It could be, some might consider it a little symbolic, um, but they do have their selection of who will be their vice president. Um, Is there an avenue there for Biden to unite the party? Or or what do you think about his pending vice presidential selection? I think his vice presidential selection is incredibly important. And I almost wish that he and Sanders would go ahead and pick who their VP would be. Um, although it could ultimately be the same person, I suppose, the same pick. Um, because that to me kind of helps complete what I see as a whole package deal. For Biden, one of the things that he said in the debate is that he 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 practically promised that he would pick a woman as the VP. Someone that I hope he considers that has been brought up before is Stacey Abrams. I would love to see him select Stacey Abrams as his VP. Another VP that I would really like to see him consider is Elizabeth Warren. Um, I don't know that he's actually considering either of them. I have no way to know that, but I think that both of those women would be admirable VP choices. And what is interesting is during the debate, as Biden is essentially promising this, it caused Sanders to go ahead and say something about a sele- about selecting a woman for VP as well. As Luke has definitely laid out, um, we all, we pretty much feel here that Sanders should go ahead and drop out. So I'm going to keep the conversation to Biden. Um, 
but yeah, I think, I think there's a big opportunity here. I think that the VP selection is important to help round out the platform, to help make sure that everyone feels like their voice is going to be heard and that their ideas are being brought to the table. And you can really do that by picking an influential VP. And, and Joe Biden faces something on a scale that very few presidential candidates face, which is like everyone always considers the VP as like a real test of like what this president's decision making is going to be like. But for older candidates like himself and like John McCain when he was running in 08, he faces the the test of could this person be president in a way that is a lot more real, uh, unfortunately, because of his age and the fact that like it's possible Joe Biden could die in office uh, because he he is an older man. So, you know, who he picks has to be ready for the presidency because, like, John McCain was having a pretty tough time running against Obama as just any human being would, but it really, really cratered once he picked Paling. And I think there was nothing more that hurt him than, than that. And so uh, Biden has a really hard task at hand. Um, I would, you know, second Megan, uh, very biased. Elizabeth Warren, think would be a great VP choice uh, in the abstract. Um, Biden does have, you know, the very hard task in front of him of uh, picking a VP that can unite all aspects of the party and keep his you know, supporters happy, but also bring in new people. And so, I mean, I'm very curious what he's going to, what decision he's going to make here. Uh, Two people that are probably high on his list, just based off the fact that Joe Biden actually said he was considering them for the, you know, vice presidency a long time ago was Kamala Harris and Abrams. So I I would kind of be unsurprised if either of them ended up being his pick. Um, But we will have to see um, because, I, I just I, I'm really wondering what the timing of all this will be because traditionally you would do it a lot closer to the DNC convention in the late summer, but will there even be a DNC convention in the late summer? You know, only time will tell. So it's just it's it's a strange time we find ourselves in, and uh, I'm hoping that Joe Biden picks someone that just makes us all sigh a sigh of relief because as I've been advocating for quite some time, his whole, his whole campaign has been vote for me. So you don't have to pay attention to what I'm doing. And I'm hoping that that's sort of the type of VP he picks as well as someone who we all immediately are like 100% competent. There's no skeletons in their closet. This is a person I would trust to do a fine job at the presidency and not make me have a heart attack every time my phone beeps. So before we say goodbye to you today, dear listeners, we have to say goodbye to Tulsi Gabbard we have been describing what? this as a two candidate. <laughs> yes, it is true. We have been no. describing. <laughs> it's impossible. Been, That's it not is, true. That's impossible. Gabbard would never leave. She was doing so well. Oh my god. This has been described as a two candidate race for quite a while, um, and normally, uh, particularly when the third candidate was a woman candidate, people might raise their hands and say, "Don't discount Tulsi Gabbard being still in this race." But it appears nobody likes Tulsi Gabbard, so nobody really even stuck up for her uh, in those descriptions of this race. Any final thoughts on Tulsi Gabbard's presidential campaign, if that was one? I would have been one of the ones that stuck up for her as like kind of the last woman standing. But as you mentioned, I don't like Tulsi Gabbard. (laughs) Um, I never did. So, yep, good riddance. Not sure why she was in it this long really hope i mean so she might make a great cabinet member 
So I don't want to like completely uh, doubt that. I don't want to completely discount her. Um, but as far as like Does the leader of the free world, she make a good member of world, Congress? No. Eh, that's fair. Um, I mean, I, I don't. I I'm not a fan. So I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna say I'm glad that she's no longer being considered. Um, and then of course, much like many of the others who have dropped out, she immediately endorsed Biden. Um, which I was frankly surprised by, to be honest. Really. Yeah. Bernie okay, people I mean, kind of like Gabbard well, a little bit. Okay, so like <clears throat> giving Gabbard her due as a political figure, because, you know, to be fair, I haven't run for president, so, you know, she deserves a moment at least. Uh, I mean, she was far leftier than Biden. She, her policies that she did propose were far more in the string of Bernie Sanders. And I mean, to, to be like blunt, like she sort of is a Bernie Sanders-esque figure of our time, you know, in the same way that like Bernie literally honeymooned in the Soviet Union, Tulsi Gabbard like went to Assad during the Syrian civil war and like talked to him. Like that's kind of a strange thing to do. And like the type of thing that like Bernie might've done had he been younger and rasher. So, I mean, in that sense, as, you know, like what side of the political movement, um, you know, she was on, on most issues, she was far leftier. You know, the like one exception to that was she's been pretty anti-LBGT uh, throughout her career. Um, but, you know, besides that, she's she's been far more pseudo-progressive in a weird way. Luke, I don't understand her. I'm, I'm marking my flag as not understanding Tulsi Gabbard. Yeah, Luke, you're going to have... I was going to say, Luke, you're going to have the Bernie bros and the Gabbard gals coming after us. Come at me. I live in Oglethorpe. Good luck finding me. <laughs> Maybe I don't think of Gabbard as that progressive just because as a, you know, the caucus chair for the Young Democrats of the Georgia LGBTQ caucus, her non-support of LGBTQ issues has been a pretty big deal so it's really hard for me to see someone as progressive who doesn't support those initiatives um i can kind of see what you're saying luke but i've always thought of gabbard as basically an independent who is super super middle of the road um neither progressive nor conservative but has a mixture of both equally throughout her platforms yeah, I think that's actually more accurate. It's just it's it's weird. Her her, her she's weird. Her record's weird, and thank God she's out running for Congress again because that's a headache I don't need. Well, do you ever <laughs> see that uh, undecided voter bot that tweets out random policy positions of undecided voters where they like support Medicare for all and want the Second Amendment to be like God's law or something like that? She has like this mix of like incoherent policy position. Maybe she not, is independent, but I think she might be. Um, well, at least that's a job that she will have next year. And on that note, I think we are going to leave it there. Um, so thank you, Luke and Megan uh, for joining today's podcast. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks as always to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.